following message was given by Rayshawn Graves on Sunday, August 6th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. Psalm 31, to the choir master, a psalm of David. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net that they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction and you have known the distress of my soul and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Be gracious to me, O God, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also, for my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity, and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me. When I was in a besieged city, I had set in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. But you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Let's take a moment to pray. Father, we thank you for this time. Uh, we thank you for your words uh, here in the Psalms. We thank you that, uh, for, for the gospel. We ask that we, you help us to, to grow an understanding of how we can place our times and our seasons in your hand because of the cross and what Jesus has accomplished for us. Lord, we ask that uh, during our time of day that you would speak and not me, that your, your words would go forth and not my own. Help us to make much of, of what you've done for us, what you've accomplished for us, Jesus, in living the perfect life in our place and then dying in our place for our sin. Help us to make much of you during this time and help us to put aside any distractions and receive from your words what you have for us to receive. And in the name of your son, we, we ask these things. In Jesus' name, amen. So I, I love the season of summer, uh, but I'm not real big on the intense heat. Uh, for some reason, some of y'all agree, okay? For some reason, whenever it gets really hot outside, uh, it brings out every ounce of moodiness in me. 
I sweat really easily. I don't stop sweating. Uh, for example, here in this unair conditioned gym this morning, uh, <laughs> I become easily aggravated, short, and just flat out uncomfortable at times. Uh, this is on top of the fact that my house stays at like 79 degrees during the summer, uh, all because I love my wife sacrificially. Um, <laughs> anyways, uh, the hottest summer I've experienced came when my family took a trip to Israel. So I was about 15 years old or so, and uh, the trip was amazing. Uh, I was doing okay uh, until we went to this place called the Fortress of Masada. And if you've ever been to Israel and been there, uh, you probably know what it's like. Um, I don't really remember that much about it, except for how high up we were and how hot it was outside. Uh, it had to be the hottest place I've ever been, and so along with the high temperatures came the high levels of, of moodiness. And along with the high levels of moodiness came the high levels of pettiness. One minute I wanted to pray to God in gratitude for being uh, able to visit such an amazing place. And the next minute I wanted to pass out. I can remember thinking everything from being so thankful to be standing where biblical fig figures like David once stood. And then in the next moment imagining myself pushing the long-winded tour guide off the top of the fortress because he was taking too long. <laughs> Again, moodiness at its best. And so then my thoughts switched up and I began to think, I wonder if David or the people of Israel ever uh, were emotionally, this emotionally affected by the heat. In that moment, I could totally understand how the Israelites complained so frequently in the wilderness in temperatures like this. Listen, I never got the answers to those questions, but based on this psalm that we're looking at today, a psalm that's filled with a variety of emotions, Masada was probably connected with David's moodiness here too, but not in the same way. In the psalm... In this, in this psalm, in the context surrounding it, it's believed that David wrote it when he was living as a fugitive on the run from King Saul. And so running from place to place, something that David eventually ended up writing this psalm here, uh, hiding at Masada, which is the same word for stronghold that appears in verse 2. And so again, this is a psalm that is filled with emotion. It's filled with a variety of emotions, and it's meant for the congregation because David addresses it to the choir master. But this definitely isn't some light and abstract contemporary Christian music. It's moody. It's everywhere concerning the emotions that it records. This is a psalm that it doesn't flinch when it records humanity in its most difficult moments. Moments of suffering, betrayal, affliction, desertion, and isolation. The lyrics to this psalm are so personal. Yet it's something David wants to get the entire congregation in on. And that's probably because these are lyrics that could apply to us all. And so today, before we jump into Psalm 31, we want to just take a, a few moments to look at some, uh, some quick things about the Psalms, about this Psalm in particular and about the Psalms in general. The Psalms are, are beautifully and brutally honest. They're not confined to clean or sanitized lyrics that gloss over our emotions and our experiences. The Psalms, they speak the gritty truth about the very real emotions that people, particularly God's people, go through daily. Psalms like this one also aren't neatly put together. They're not neatly structured. You look at the trajectory of Psalm 31 and it's like a seismograph. It goes from crying out in intense pain to, to confidence in prayer, back down to sadness and lament, all the way back up to, to thankfulness and praise and proclamation. Psalms like this one describe the way in which God is at work, even through the flurry of emotions and experiences that we regularly find ourselves in. 
And so Psalms like this, Psalm 31, tell us that as God's people, there is no prescriptive, generalized blanket formula in how we go to God in the midst of the processing of our emotions. There's no, there's no magic formula in how we go to God in our sufferings, in our times of anxiety and distress. David shows us that even in our inability, in our uh, complete instability and disarray, we can trust in a God who is big enough to handle our mess. We can trust in God to meet us where we're at in the processing of our emotions and our experiences. And so today, today, let's see how David shows us what it looks like to go to God and in these moments. So in this psalm today, we can see in verses 1 through 2, David's cry. In verses 3 through 8, David's confidence. In verses 9 through 13, David's present lament. In verses 14 through 18, David's prayer. In verses 19 through 22, David's praise. And in verses 23 through 24, David's proclamation. And so let's look quickly at David's cry in verses 1 through 2. Notice that it's in his request for refuge, for deliverance and salvation that we discover that David must find himself in some kind of hard place or some kind of emergency situation. And so what do you and I do when it comes to contacting people when we're in emergency? Well, you call the people you know are going to pick up. You call the people you know you can depend on. And this is what David does here. Because God is his refuge and because he's invested and placed the seeds of his eternal hope in the ground of of who this good God is, his cry in this emergency is literally, listen, Lord, because I am rooted in you as my refuge, don't let me reach shame or disappointment ever. Lord, I am calling on you because I, I know I can depend on you. I know you will not let me down. Furthermore, this initial cry for deliverance, it's, it's like the 911 call that you place in an emergency. It's, it's a cry that's looking for an immediate response, immediate and quick help, which is why David says, deliver me quickly, rescue me speedily, save me. Now look, there are entire movements within Christianity that, that seem to focus on getting God to act in a particular and specific and timely manner in our sufferings. There's things that you can say, there's things that you can do, there's money that you can give to get God to act immediately. But just taking, taking one look at the scriptures, we know that God doesn't always work like that. Just taking one look at the world around us, we know the world doesn't always work like that. We don't always get the interview the day after we lose our jobs. Our broken relationships don't always mend themselves and turn around overnight. The world around us, it doesn't change how we think it should or how it should overnight in the next four or 54 years. See, we might continue to battle the problems within our our health and within our marriages. We might continue to wrestle with sinful desires. So this cry that David utters, it's not magic words. This is just how David's feeling at the time. This is a genuine cry for immediate deliverance because the the need for this deliverance is immediate. He needs it now. And this too can be our cry in the midst of our emergencies. Come, Lord, quickly, help me now. And so furthermore, in this emergency, David looks to the Lord to be a fortress for him, a rock of refuge. See, he might be thinking of Masada's fortress, but he's not just thinking of God being military-like protection. No, David's thinking of the Lord as his rest, as a place of safety. This fortress is like the comfort of your bed after a long and frustrating day at work. 
It's like that chair that you had, that recliner, you know, where you can go to, you can sit on it, you can put your feet up, you can wear your pajamas and get a blanket, you can binge on Netflix, you can read a book, sit in front of a fire, and you can just get away from all the distress, all the anxiety, everything outside, and just be in your safe, comfortable spot. David is saying that that is who God is for him in this moment. And so now we've seen David's cry, and now we'll see David's confidence. You look at verse 3, it restates the same desire, but with more confidence. See, God will be a resting place and protection in this moment because God has been this. And it's not on the basis of anything good or bad within us or within David, but purely on the basis of who God is within himself. It's because of God's great aim to show himself and his name as supremely glorious in being a refuge and a protector for his people that he moves to deliver us, to rescue us, to lead us and guide us. Now notice the focus of this confidence in verse 3 through 8 is on and in God himself. Ten times in these verses, David says, you, 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 your name, your hand, your steadfast love, meaning that it's the person of God that our hope and our confidence must be rooted in during moments of distress and suffering. It's God who we can trust in and rejoice in. It's the Lord who sees our affliction and knows the distress of our souls. And so in going to the Lord in moments of emotional chaos and stress and suffering, we're not just going to an inanimate fortress. We're not just going to uh, protection and and safety in a military sort of way. We're not even going to the objects of comfort like our couches or our blankets or all those kinds of things that we take refuge in, as I stated previously. No, even more, we're going to a person, one who recognizes our frailty who listens to us and empathizes with us. But even more than that, we also go to one who acts freely for our benefit. We go to a God who acts powerfully and proactively and is able to to do something about the situations that we face, both in the circumstances and in us. Again, it's in these moments that because God is our refuge, we see that God himself will lead us and guide us. He will take us out of traps set for our destruction. He preserves us and keeps us by not delivering us into the hand of our enemies. He sets our feet into a broad and spacious place. When I think about how God is doing that, I immediately think of how I woke up at four this morning and as I was walking through my bedroom, I immediately stepped on a Batman car that my son left on the floor. And just thinking about how we constantly are removing those toys and creating a spacious place throughout the house so he can run freely and not crush his foot on a Batman toy. See, these are the ways that God pursues his people in the midst of our chaos and distress. We don't have to muster up some sort of effort to try to get God to act for us. So often, don't we do that? We try to to do things in the midst of our sufferings and our anxieties and our processing, our emotions, to try to get God to to work in some way, to say some magic words, to pray rightly, to, to do something. But see, what this psalm tells us is that God was actively and proactively working on behalf of David even when David couldn't. This is how he meets us where we are, and it's why our confidence must rest in him. Because when we find ourselves in the midst of overwhelming chaos and emotion and distress, unable and unable to rescue ourselves, 
we can know that God is always working. He's always working for his people. And this is why David, this is why David in verse 5 can say in full assurance, into your hand I commit my spirit. See, in the moments of weakness and affliction, you and I, we can place the full measure of our lives into the hands of God in full confidence, with full assurance, knowing that he cares for us. He will care for us. And again, how does David know this? How can we know this? Well, the second half of verse 5, you have redeemed me. You've ransomed me. You've purchased me. See, the word that David uses here for redeem literally refers to the price paid for someone or something. And if you were here in our, our series on Ruth, the focus here isn't on God as redeemer in the sense that Boaz redeemed Ruth, although that's true. The focus here on this word redeemed in Psalms 31 is on the price paid. And this is more than deliverance, which is just simply a, a declaration of freedom by an authority. The price paid here, the ransom. It's not meant also to communicate that God paid some enemy in order to purchase us. The focus here on the price, on the redemption, is the effort exerted in the payment of the price. See, in redemption, God displays his strength in a saving way, in the same way that he delivered the, the people of Israel when they were in bondage in Egypt. He delivered them, as the scripture says, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. God displayed his strength and his power in saving them at a cost to himself. And this isn't abstract and legal, it's involved, it's messy, it's personal. In redemption, God has taken on the problems of the redeemed as his own. He's actively involved himself in our chaos and in our problems, in our anxiety and our emotions. And this is why David refers to him next as the faithful God. See, God has com forever committed himself to the redeemed to be their refuge, to be their fortress and their place of rest. Our chaos is his. Our struggles, our sufferings are his. And it's because of this, who God has powerfully revealed himself to be to David, that all other gods and idols are worthless and empty. They're futile. And what David is saying is even people who are pursuing them are wasting their time. In verse 6, essentially what he's saying is that those who are waiting on salvation from worthless deities, they're calling dead emergency numbers. Nobody's picking up and no one will pick up. The situation will continue to get worse because those deities won't respond. And for us, our careers won't provide this refuge. They won't pick up in the moments where we need deliverance, where we need redemption. Our friends our spouses, our relationships, they cannot bear the full weight of our emotional turmoil in the moments of our sufferings and anxieties and stresses. Our vices cannot alleviate these sufferings. So for us, whatever ground it is that you've sown the seeds of your eternal hope into, what Psalms 31 is saying to us is that if it's anything other than the powerfully active, faithful, and loving Yahweh, then we will reap shame and emptiness. To paraphrase David's words in verse 2, we will be put to shame. But as God's people, 
as people who turn to him for a hope and a refuge. May we say, as verse 6 summarizes, that as far as I'm concerned, it is in God, it is in Yahweh that I have placed my trust. This is the confidence that comforts David in the midst of chaos. But having this confidence doesn't always seem to change the present circumstances, does it? You know, these truths, they may, they may ease the soul, but they don't always change the situation. And isn't that a real issue that we, we tend to face in, in going through these things? Sure, the right theology secures us, the truth, it gives us a harness, but we're still often left hanging off the cliff in our present sufferings and in our processing of them. And so in spite of the calm voice of the spiritual reality of who God is and, and what he has done, the present conditions sometimes seem to scream a little louder. We wrestle with impatience in the wait. We find ourselves discontent and emotionally unstable, overwhelmed in the in-between. David gets this, which is why he expresses this in his transition into his present lament. I recently read a biography from one of my favorite music producers, a guy named Timothy Mosley. Uh, in it, he describes the depression he went through after one of the artists that he was really close to died in a plane crash. He states that it crushed him. And while he never thought about taking his own life, he says that everything in his life was taken. He became physically unhealthy. He lost all motivation to do anything. His relationships were severely fractured and broken. He developed an alcohol addiction. But more than anything during that time, what he felt, it showed up in his music. And as a fan, someone who listened to his music, you could tell something just wasn't there. The music was either non-existent or it had just changed. And maybe that's what this psalm is in the moment. Maybe that's what this psalm is uh, as David is writing it. As he submits it to the choir master. The choir master reads it and says, David, what, what, what's happening here? This isn't Psalm 2. It's not Psalms 150. What's happening? We can't sing this as a congregation. It's all over the place. This is what David is expressing. The creativity is gone. The goals, the focus, the, the feeling, the expectation, gone. So this is what he describes in verses 9 through 13, the distress, the grief, the sorrow, the weakness, the physical frailty. He's lost hope. He's lost vigor. It feels like there's nothing left to live for. But in this lament, it's, more, it's about more than just how David feels internally in the moment. It's about more than just how he sees and views himself. It's also about how he's perceived by those around him. Now look, we can act as though we don't care that much about how others perceive us, but it matters. We know if we're honest that it definitely takes a toll on us. Slander, gossip, lying, prejudice and discrimination, rejection. It is painful. It's hurtful. In verses 11 through 13, David expresses that. He says, because of my adversaries or through them, I've become a reproach. My neighbors especially hate me. My acquaintances, they want nothing to do with me. Everyone's forgotten about me. They treat me as if I was dead already. My adversaries want to kill me. And so if you've ever experienced this, if you've ever been on this end of the, the receiving of this negative perception, you understand you take great efforts to try to change that in people's minds. You take great efforts to try to, to, try to change how people are viewing you in the moments of, of anxiety and, and stress and suffering and affliction. 
try to fake it till you make it. You put on the, the fake smile. You say, if I could just get through this, then I'll share it with other people. And until then, I'm just going to put my head down. I'm going to bear through it and just let everybody know I'm okay. I'm fine. But listen, you know, these efforts are, are futile. They're worthless. Because sure, you can change your behavior. And some of us do a great job at doing that, but you can't change people's minds. So what David is saying here is that he's a marked man. And for us, when we experience these negative perceptions, we're branded, we're categorized, we're marked, and sometimes it feels as though there's no escaping it in the present. And look, the reasons for these perceptions, these negative perceptions and these feelings, they're, they're not always grounded in falsehood. David is saying in verse 10 that he's, he's willing to acknowledge that his own iniquity is the cause for why he might be experiencing some of these feelings and reactions of others. And it may even be the case with us at times. But whether our pain or our scorn from others is brought on by ourselves or whether it's unjustly placed on us, David's response here in his present lament can help us in similar moments. Look at verse 9. You see that David goes towards God in this present situation. He goes towards God in the present suffering, in vulnerability, in honesty, with full emotion. He goes towards God and expressing his feelings, exactly how he's feeling. And because God is his refuge and fortress, he appeals to God's grace. He appeals to the grace and the graciousness of God in this moment. And it's God's grace that, is, that he sees as the remedy for what seems like unending chaos and severe affliction. And it's this request that's rooted in who God is, has been and, and what God has already done. See, what David is saying here is that if God looks favorably upon me, if God acts graciously towards me, if he hears me and if he's compassionate towards me, even when I'm completely undeserving and don't deserve anything good, if God is gracious towards me, even when all have withheld, withheld grace from me and turned their backs on me, then this is enough. God's grace is enough. So it's from this grace. It's from this grace of God that God gives confidence. David finds confidence to turn this present and bitter lament into a bold prayer. And so now we see David's prayer here. And so now here, from, from here, the trajectory starts to go up a little bit. His cry, his confidence, all the way down to his lament, his sufferings, his pain, and now back to, to thankfulness. So in verses 14 through 18, even in the midst of such a pitiable state, David again proclaims his trust in God. And now out of his faith in God, David now breathes out the language of faith, prayer. David seeks communion and fellowship with God. He brings his petition before God. As it is the same way with us, we don't always understand why we're going through the distress and sufferings that we go through. We don't always understand why we are in the experiences that we're in, but again, David acknowledges God's gracious and sovereign power, even through the midst of these feelings and this processing. When he says here, my times are in your hand. Listen, as God's people, the trajectory of our lives marked by joys, sufferings, anxieties, and comforts, it's in the hands of our good and gracious God. 
The process of our experiences isn't just being watched over by God, but it's actually being worked in and through by him. And so this is why David can, again, in confidence, he can now invoke God's involvement in his present circumstances. He can pray confidently, God, rescue me, make your face shine on me, save me, do not let me be put to shame. He can even request that God be faithful to his punishment of the wicked who have worked against him. All because he rests confidently in the free grace of God, who is orchestrating and sovereignly working throughout the seasons of David's life. God is at work and David places his confidence in his times and his present situation, even though he doesn't understand them, into the hands of this good and sovereign God. Listen, if you know me, you know that I'm a huge NBA fan. I've been a spectator for a while, so I don't really have a team. Uh, But once upon a time, I I was rooting for the Sixers. I was a Philadelphia 76ers fan, Uh, and I still am when they win. Uh, But the thing is, they don't really do that that much these days. For the longest time, they haven't had a winning season, and uh, actually they've done the opposite. They've started to lose games on purpose in order to to secure better players for the NBA draft. Um, All who for the Sixers always seem to get injured, uh, which is sad. Uh, Please stick with me, non-basketball people. I I get it. I'm about to make a point, so just, just follow me. So in the midst of this losing and, and, and all the injuries from their draft picks, the organization developed this sort of mantra to boost the morale of players during the difficult and losing seasons. Three words, trust the process. Trust the process. So what this meant is that essentially the team ownership and management, they wanted the players to know that losing was not going to be the final word for the organization if it was up to them. Injuries were not going to keep this team down forever. This was all part of a bigger process that they could trust, which would eventually make them winners again, hopefully. So this is happening very, very, very slowly. There's still injuries. There's still some losing. But this mantra, this slogan, the trust the process for for this organization, it's, it's a good hope. It's a well wish. Nothing seems to be guaranteed with it, as, as good as they, as much as they believe it. But listen, I think the same slogan could be applied to our experiences, but with even more confidence. Because when the Lord tells us to trust the process, when David proclaims that my times and seasons are in your hands, it isn't just a well wish for a good and present outcome, or that we should just simply hope for the best in the moments of emotional instability and chaos and suffering. As God's people, to trust the process means that we can confidently trust that our times and our seasons, even when they appear to be losing seasons, are in the hands of our good and gracious God for the working of his glory and for our joy. We can trust the process of our times being in God's hand because our final outcome, it's not in question. Our final outcome is guaranteed. And so for us as God's people to trust the process isn't an unfulfilled phrase, it's an unshakable promise. It's grounded in the eternal reality that God has already done something, and therefore in light of that, we can be assured that he is working presently for us. Because God has redeemed us, he will be for us in our present circumstances. If he did not spare his only son but gave him up for us all, will he not much more graciously give us all things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
we can be assured that God is working for us no matter how the present appears or in spite of how we're even able to process it. And so to trust the process, it means going to God. It means going to him honestly, vulnerably with our sin, with our weaknesses, with our anxieties, our fears, our frustrations, and yet confidently trusting that he is at work. It's going to him, knowing that the outcome, the outcome of our souls is guaranteed. So now it's out of this trust that David goes from prayer to praise. Notice there's nothing here about any kind of change in the present, but now we see that there's a celebration of God's goodness. This is the attitude of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, where he says that God's people are always being regarded as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And it's a reminder of God's goodness and his grace that's been extended to his people in times of difficulty that will ultimately ground us and will sustain us but it will also direct us in worship and, and praise to God, even in moments of chaos. And look, this isn't a fake response. This isn't plastic. This isn't the fake smile where David's coming into church and singing the songs even though he doesn't feel like it. This is not walking through the door and you ask him how he's doing. As I, as I did growing up, you see people who are going through immense suffering and you approach them in church and ask them how they're doing. It's a, I'm blessed and highly favored. This isn't that. No, this rejoicing in this moment is, is my life is a mess. Life is really bad right now. It's hard, it's confusing, it's overwhelming. I'm a mess. And God is good. And God is good. It's because of the abundance, abundant goodness of God that God's people are preserved and protected, even in the face of distress and false perception. It's God's goodness. God who has redeemed his people when we did nothing to deserve redemption. It's this abundant goodness that this psalm says that is stored up for us. It's God's goodness that defangs the sting of rejection from others. It's God's goodness stored up for us that defangs the sting of despair in our sufferings. It defangs the sting of hopelessness when we feel like there's nothing left to live for. It's God's goodness that covers us, as this psalm says, the way that a tent would have covered David from the desert heat. Furthermore, it's because of the steadfast love of God, the unwavering, fully committed, covenant-keeping love of God. It's because of this steadfast love that God remains faithful to us, even in our alarm even our being overwhelmed, even in our processing and our failure to process the emotions of these chaos and this distress, even when these things lead us to believe that we have been cut off from God, separated from him. The greater reality because of his steadfast love towards us is that God is fully committed to us, giving us mercy hearing us in our weakness and giving us his presence. So now David extends this to the congregation. He gives an encouragement to those who are hearing this and find themselves in these circumstances, finding difficulty processing. He says, love the Lord, all you saints, in verse 23. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. 
Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. So the response to seeing the goodness and steadfast love of God displayed toward us freely, love this God. Enjoy him. God has committed himself to us and he has exerted his power, his mighty hand and an outstretched arm towards us when we brought nothing but our sin, our chaos, and our weakness to the table. He's exerted his his strength and his power in saving us and preserving us in our most helpless conditions, both in the past, presently, and into our future. People of God, when you find yourself in the unstable and overwhelming chaos of sin, suffering, and the feelings that come alongside all of these things, because you will find yourself in these moments, the encouragement for us is to go Godward. Go to God in your weakness. Go to God in honesty. Go to God in prayer. Don't clean it up. Don't sanitize it. Go to God in full expression of whatever havoc our experiences and our sufferings are wreaking upon us. But also go in gratitude. Because this God has redeemed you. This God has committed himself to you so that you can go to him. He's committed himself to you in complete faithfulness. He sovereignly and powerfully holds the times and the seasons of our life in his gracious hands, no matter how long those seasons are. Because again, this isn't just a period of time marked by something like May to June. David is saying, I'm entrusting into your hands these entire seasons of my life, no matter how quick or how long they are. I trust that you are sovereignly and powerfully working in them and in me. Rest confidently and be strengthened by the commitment that God displays to his people. And then wait for him. Sit on that couch of of real refuge in God, pull that blanket over yourself and just binge on the Netflix of God's goodness and wait for him. Enjoy him. He will respond. He will be your safe place. He will answer. Listen, I can't guarantee you that the present trouble will go away. I can't promise that things will change for the better immediately. There are at least a hundred more psalms like this because there will be a million more moments that we will experience the kind of things that David is experiencing here. These things don't go away in this world. What I can guarantee, though, is the outcome. For those who trust in and root themselves in the person of God himself as our hope, as our refuge, as our strength, you will never be put to shame. You will experience abundant goodness. You will receive and continue receiving grace from God. You will be kept by his power forever. He will not lose you. You will not be lost. You will be kept by his power forever. His grip will sustain you even when your grip, when you don't have a grip and when you can't get a grip. Listen, how do we know this is guaranteed? Because these lyrics don't lie. Just like the rest of Scripture, these lyrics don't lie. They never have. You remember how I said in the beginning that this uh, psalm wasn't just a personal psalm, but David actually penned it for the congregation, for everybody to sing. He gives it to the choir master and Uh, He wants everybody to get in on this singing of it. Well, it's true. Some of these lyrics were constantly on the mouths of the people of Israel 
uh, in singing it, but also in the form of a prayer. And so, have you ever prayed that, that prayer as a, as a kid, that famous little, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep, if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take? Now, everybody in the first service was fronting like they never prayed it, but I prayed it. And certainly more people have in here, I hope. Yeah, there we go. I get a hand. Okay. Now, look, I always deleted that last part because I typically don't like to think about death before I go to sleep. Uh, so I usually inserted like the sinner's prayer in some form or just prayed that, you know, the rapture wouldn't happen and I'd wake up by myself the next morning. Anyway, am I the only one that ever did that? Uh, anyways, don't answer. Listen, this was a prayer that expressed committing our souls to God who would safely care for them, even in the worst of circumstances, death. Well, look at verse 5. That's what verse 5 is. It is this bedtime prayer that the children and the people of Israel would pray before bed. Into your hand I commit my spirit. But look, you've seen these words before somewhere else, right? Let's just cut, cut to the point. You've seen these words before. Not on the mouths of children, but prayed by a grown man. And not before his bedtime, but before his death. These are some of the final words, the final prayer of Jesus as he was nailed to a Roman cross. As he hung there, gasping for air from his broken body, and looking down and seeing his blood shed, he cries out this final prayer, Father, into your hand I commit my spirit. It was at the cross that Jesus, the son of David, the son of God, endured far worse suffering than David ever did. He bore mockery, ridicule, and the shame from others who watched his agony, and he had no hideout or fortress to run to. There was no Masada for him in that moment, not literally, not spiritually. See, in this moment, as he hung there on the cross, Jesus was exposed. He was exposed to death. He was exposed to judgment. He was exposed to reproach. He was exposed to his enemies. He was exposed as his bones wasted away before him. There would be no deliverance for him in this moment. He was literally cut off from God's sight, as this psalm says. He was forsaken by God his Father, even though it wasn't for his iniquity that he hung there. And yet, yet Jesus commits his entire self to God, his Father. He entrusts his soul into the care of his faithful God, even when he would be forsaken by him. He commits himself in death to God's sovereign care and control. And notice, notice, he doesn't quote the second half of verse 5. And you might say, well, he's hanging there in death. Why should he recite the whole song? No, I think Jesus does this purposefully. Why? Because he himself is the redemption. He himself is the price paid. As 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says that he has been made our redemption. And as we sing so often, see the price of our redemption, see the Father's plan unfold, bringing many sons to glory, grace unmeasured, love untold. Jesus is the price paid so that people like David, so that people like you and I could speak the second half of verse 5, so that we could say, into your hands I commit my spirit, you have redeemed me. As Jesus is there on the cross, committing himself in death into the hands of his Father. He shows us that he is the way through which God has exerted himself and has displayed his mighty power, his mighty hand and his outstretched arm in redeeming sinful, broken, and weak people. 
He is the way in which God just demonstrates and displays his great faithfulness and his grace to those who trust in him and seek him as a fortress and as a refuge. It's through Jesus that God now commits himself to and feels with us, the broken, the anxious, the emotionally unstable, the fleeting. It's because of Jesus that God commits himself to the weak and to the broken, to the suffering. Listen, because Jesus committed himself to the hands, into the hands of God his Father, God placed upon him the judgment, the wrath, and the punishment that you and I deserve for our sin. At the cross, Jesus took upon himself the cutting off from God that we deserve, that David deserved in this moment. And in turn, because he committed himself to God, even in the midst of the worst kind of agony and suffering, even when God forsook him in that moment, when he committed himself to God, three days later, God raised him up from the dead, giving us our guarantee, giving us assurance that our outcome is fixed in the hands of God, giving us assurance that our time and our seasons are not wasted. They're not for nothing. In raising Jesus up from the dead, God displayed to the world through Jesus that God has accepted all who turn from the vanity and worthlessness of all other things to seek and take refuge in him. In raising Jesus up from the dead, God has guaranteed that all of us who endure the sufferings the inability to process our emotions in these sufferings, anxieties and afflictions, he is displayed in his resurrection that God will not put us to shame. That God will deliver us. He is the guarantee. So because of what Jesus has accomplished for us, we can commit ourselves to God in confidence and rest. Whatever our times and seasons are where you presently are, you can commit yourself to God in confidence and rest because of this Jesus. We can know that our times and our seasons are in his hand for his glory and for our joy. We'll take a moment now to transition into the, the part of the service where we take communion. In this time, as we reflect on the broken body of Christ and his blood shed, we want to take a moment to reflect to think about, maybe you find yourself in a place where you can sing these exact lyrics because your present circumstances are those of lament, frustration, weakness, brokenness, suffering. Take a minute to reflect, but then reminded that if your hope is in this Jesus who lived a perfect life and then died and was crushed in our place for our sin, if your hope is in him, you can come forward to be reminded that he is a fortress and a refuge of strength. He is a safe place where you can go to in your processing and you can find refreshment. You can find joy. You can find praise. And you can sing confidently knowing that your times and your seasons are in God's hand. If, if that's you and your hope is in him, be refreshed of his broken body and his shed blood. Today, if your hope is not in Jesus, if you say maybe my allegiance is elsewhere, I've tried to find hope in my career, I've tried to find it in my, my spouse, my relationships, my friendships, my, my, my vices, the things that I keep dialing and don't call back and don't pick up, 
I encourage you to, to remain at your seat during this time and do exactly what David does here in no, in no magic words kind of way, in no clean and sanitized way. Pray to God. Call out to him. Express, express your, your, your emotion and your wh whatever you're feeling and then believe and, and trust in this Jesus. Remain at your seat if that's you, if your hope is, you're not sure where that's at this morning. But also watch those who come forward, who don't have it in and of themselves to find redemption, but have been redeemed even when we were broken, even when we're weak, even when we're flailing and all over the place. Watch as God's people come forward and find refreshment and refuge in Jesus. You've been listening to a message by Rayshawn Graves, given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.